Hello, and welcome to Agnes, the late antique, medieval, and Byzantine podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and today I'm talking to Dr. Rory Cox about the morality of war in the late Middle Ages. Dr. Cox earned his PhD from the University of Oxford and is now at the School of History at the University of St. Andrews. His book, John Wycliffe on War and Peace, was published in 2014. I'm assigning this book to my class on medieval political thought, and I'm really excited to speak with Dr. Cox today. Well, Dr. Cox, thank you so much for talking to me today, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very pleased to be here. I thought we'd start by talking about who John Wycliffe was and his significance, which I know is a huge question to start off with. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, John John Wycliffe was a 14th century English theologian and philosopher. He was born in the north of England, in Yorkshire, probably in the small hamlet of Wycliffe. Uh, he was probably born around 1320 or 1330. We don't actually know exactly when he was born. But we do know that he eventually made his way to Oxford, which was the great English university of the day, alongside the slightly newer uh, Cambridge. And he was in Oxford probably from the early 1340s, certainly by the late 1340s, we have evidence of him being there. And he has a a reasonably conservative, uh, orthodox career at Oxford. He emerges as a a leading intellectual light. And from the 1360s, he's already being recognized as a key intellectual. He's referred to in one chronicle as the Flos Oxonier, the flower of Oxford. He primarily focuses on reasonably hardcore uh, theology and logic and realist philosophy. And I can talk a little bit more about that later. Um, but after the 13, early 1370s, there's a, there's a break in his thought. Um, he becomes increasingly engaged in ecclesiology, that is kind of the, 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 the law and politics of the church, rather than theology per se. Um, he becomes interested in political philosophy, Um, And he really emerges as a critic of the clergy and the papacy. Um, And he is eventually expelled from Oxford for a number of his views in 1381. And he is exiled to his parish uh, of Lutterworth in Leicestershire. And he lives there for the next three years and eventually dies on New Year's Eve 1384. He dies as a member of the church, um, but is later condemned as a heretic at the Council of Constance in 1415. And after that, some years after that, his body is actually dug up, his bones are burned, and the ashes are thrown into the river. Interestingly, he actually makes it into Fox's Book of Martyrs, so technically, he wasn't actually martyred. He, he, he died of, of natural causes, and he died as a member of, of the church. But because of this later um, uh, sort of crusade against him, I suppose, as pro- later Protestant writers would, would put it, um, a, 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 an unjust crusade, as obviously that they, they believed, and the fact that his body was disinterred and, and burned and scattered, the, the, he almost assumed this mantle of a martyr, that he was persecuted during his life and and even after his life. So he's one of the very few people in Fox's Book of Martyrs that wasn't actually technically martyred. 
So Wycliffe was an extremely prolific writer. So what are the texts that you work with? Well, yeah, that's absolutely right. He wrote uh, an incredible amount. Um, and if you go to the, the, the somewhere like the Bodleian Library in Oxford, where his the majority of his Latin treaties are, are on the shelf in the reading room, they fill up several shelves in and of themselves. As I said, he wrote primarily on logic and metaphysics and theological questions from around 1360 to 1373, all in Latin, obviously. And from 1373 up to his death in 1384, he assumes a more practical focus. And he actually says that this was a a deliberate decision to, to do this. And he starts writing on the issue of grace founded dominion or lordship. He writes about ecclesiastical disendowment, so taking away the property of the church. He writes about the literal and absolute truth of scripture. He writes about transubstantiation, and he writes political works. He writes many sermons. We have 245 sermons that he wrote, and there were probably more that didn't survive. And all of these works become increasingly polemical. So his his Latin works number in the hundreds. Um, his major or his longest work is a is a work of political philosophy called De Civili Dominio, which means on civil lordship, and that covers three volumes and was completed by 1376. So there are a huge amount of Latin works attributed to him. There are also a number of English works attributed to him. Um, however. I very much took the stance in my book that none of these English works can actually be securely attributed to John Wycliffe. Uh, And myself and other scholars before me, particularly scholars like Anne Hudson, have really argued that these English works are more likely to be the product of his um, disciples, um, who were often known as Lollards or came to be known as Lollards, And I use these English works as a point of comparison with Wycliffe's Latin works, but I did not use them as a as a basis for his own thought, because I I think that you can only really use the Latin works to do that reliably. And for these Latin works, do we have original manuscripts from Wycliffe's own hand or are the manuscripts that we have later copies? We don't have a signature uh, of, of Wycliffe. No, um, they are, or they appear to be um, copies produced by uh, his supporters, most, most often, sometimes produced by his enemies, and they survive reasonably well. They, the majority of his works actually survive in, in Europe um, because he was, he was quite well known uh, in, in Bohemia, where he was adopted by Jan Hus, who was the founder of the Hussites and was also burned at the Council of Constance, the same council that condemned Wycliffe as a heretic. And and Jan Hus was very much uh, accused of adopting Wycliffe's heretical stances. Um, So his works survived in Bohemia much better than they survived in England, where Wycliffeite texts and the Lollards themselves were very much persecuted in the late 14th and early 15th centuries. Um, so we have copies of his texts from the late 14th and 15th century, but we don't have any texts that we can say these were written by Wycliffe himself. 
And do you work with printed editions of these texts, or have you worked directly from manuscripts? Uh, both. The the majority of the research that I did was based on edited uh, works. The, in, the, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, there was a scholarly society called the Wycliffe Society, and this was composed of English, German, uh, Czech, and uh, Austrian scholars mainly. And they really made it their mission to collate the manuscripts that survive to edit them uh, and to publish them. And they really did uh, a pretty decent and, and thorough job. They missed out a few of the more minor tracts and treaties, which are held in a number of archives uh, across Europe and, and England. Um, so I actually went to Vienna uh, and, and spent four months in Vienna looking at the manuscripts held in the Österreichs Nationalbibliothek. But on the whole, if you want to read the bulk of Wycliffe's work, you can read it in edited volumes. One last question about texts before we move on to your claims and your arguments. You, you mentioned a number of texts that Wycliffe authored, and these were you know, lots of, of religious and spiritual texts, including sermons, and you said there's some political works. Uh, does Wycliffe actually have a treatise specifically devoted to war? No, unfortunately not. It would have been nice if he if he had. Uh, it would have made my argument much simpler. Um, no, he doesn't. And the approach that I had to take in trying to reconstruct or, or to, to figure out what his thought on war actually was, was essentially to read everything. Um, because his thought on war develops over time. It develops over at least two decades. It is informed by his philosophy. It is informed by his theology. It is informed by his views on the apostolic life. It is informed by his views on divine law and civil law or human law. And it is informed by his views on wealth and church wealth. So really, everything that Wycliffe writes about goes in to contributing towards what he thought about war. On top of that, obviously, is the actual political situation of mid to late 14th century England itself, where the English are essentially in an ongoing conflict with the French, which has now come to be known as the Hundred Years' War. So there's really a, a great deal of political and religious change going on in Europe and in England at this time. And all of these factors sort of add up in Wycliffe's works. And, and so you really have to be very thorough. And it was, it was you know, a lot of work to try to figure out where he writes about war and what he thinks about war. But I think what is evident when you read these works is that a consistent pattern of thought develops and that it is coherent um, on the whole and that you can actually say that he created a doctrine of sorts. Well, let's just move right into talking about that doctrine of sorts then. Uh, what is the central claim that you make about Wycliffe's thinking about war uh, in your own book? So the central claim is that Wycliffe was a pacifist. Now, that in and of itself is really quite remarkable because the Middle Ages isn't famed for its pacifism. Obviously, if most people think of the Middle Ages, you know, knights in shining armor and a series of brutal wars are really uh, the, the first thing that pop into many people's heads. 
So the fact that the, the, the Middle Ages, and particularly the 14th century, which is often regarded as a particularly violent and calamitous century, the fact that this century should, should have a pacifist, an absolute pacifist, is really quite remarkable. And I think even more importantly, the, the early Christian church moved away from nonviolence and pacifism quite early in its history at least from the 4th century AD, and certainly by the 5th century AD. And a dedicated, serious, coherent doctrine of pacifism doesn't emerge again. You know, we have we have pro-peace movements, you know, people who prefer peace to war, but that is most sane people, isn't it? But what we don't have is people who say all war is wrong. War is morally repugnant, full stop. What we have instead is actually an acceptance that some violence is justified. And, and this is referred to as the just war tradition. And this very much dominates the Middle Ages and arguably even dominates today. And so to find a, an intellectual who creates a, a, a rigid doctrine of pacifism within the Middle Ages is, is remarkable. Uh, and that's the, that's the central claim of the book. Well, before we go on, let's pause and, and talk a little bit more about just war theory or, or just war doctrine. Can you tell listeners what you mean by that and, and perhaps give a little history of it? Absolutely. Well, just war doctrine is really the, the, the concept or the idea or the belief, however you want to think about it, that violence is justifiable and legitimate. Now, evidence of this type of ethical thought and legal thought goes back to at least the second millennium BC. We see it in the ancient Near East. We certainly see it in classical Greece in writings by Plato and Aristotle. But in the Western tradition, it really comes to the fore through the writings of the Roman orator and polit politician uh, Marcus Tullius Cicero, who most people have probably heard of, um, in the, he, who lived in the first century BC. Now, just war doctrine as we know it or as it was known in the Middle Ages, was really based on three key pillars. The first was just cause, that there has to be a legitimate cause to go to war. Now, self-defense is really the, the most important of these causes. In other words, if someone attacks you and puts your life at risk, then you are justified in attacking them back to save your own life. This concept of self-defense can be expanded into defense of allies or friends, defense of associates, defense of property, defense of territory, so the, the integrity of a, of a state. There is also in the notion of just cause ideas about punishment as well, that punishing the unjust attacker puts back the status quo. And, and, and so this is a central um, pillar of just war doctrine. The second important pillar is the concept of authority, that not everybody can go and declare a war, that you and I as private individuals can't just declare war on a state or a nation, that you have to have public legitimate authority. So, you know, when Cicero was writing, the public authority was obviously the Republic, the Roman Republic. It later becomes associated with princes or kings, but the, the, the key idea is that the person or the executive 
that declares war has to represent a community and has to be a legitimate representation of that community. The final pillar, which is very important within Christian just war doctrine, and which was really introduced by authors like uh, St. Ambrose of Milan, and is especially associated with St. Augustine of Hippo, is the concept of correct intention. The problem for Christian writers was the doctrine of charity and the preaching of turning the other cheek, loving thy neighbor, etc., etc. So how do you reconcile those passive self-sacrificing actions with violent actions like killing somebody or, or mutilating somebody in war? Well, what Ambrose and Augustine said was that actually it's our duty to protect the innocent that is primary. So we have to we have to resist unjust attackers and we have to resist evil. And they also made a very important claim by saying that you could love the unjust and through loving the unjust, you can actually use violence against them. So as Augustine would say, you can wage war peaceably. And his basic theory was that through your act of violence, you were restraining the unjust attacker and therefore preventing him from committing more sin. You were also sacrificing yourself potentially or putting your life at risk potentially, and you were saving the innocent. And all of these actions are actions of charity or actions of love. So, you know, this, this sort of remarkable theory was developed that violence could actually be an act of love, that you could kill even with love. So these three pillars of cause, authority, and intention were what defined medieval just war theory and created a lot of works and a lot of speculative writing on exactly how those uh, three pillars interacted with each other and the nuances of them. But the, that was essentially just war doctrine in the Middle Ages at its simplest. So given that, as you say, this is a world that people tend to think of as being very violent, and, and certainly late medieval England is the inspiration for Game of Thrones, for example, uh, yeah. it seems pretty shocking for someone to be a pacifist in this period. So what is the methodology that you use to demonstrate that Wycliffe was a medieval pacifist? And, and maybe what does it mean even to be a pacifist in this world? Yeah, I mean, I think that second question is is, is a very good question, because it's not clear sometimes what pacifism means. And actually, the word pacifism is, is a 20th century uh, neologism. You know, there was no such word as pacifist or pacifism in, in the Middle Ages. What we usually take pacifism to mean is anti-warism. Okay, and so it's, it's the idea that war is uniquely morally repugnant, and that no good ever comes of waging war. Because even just war doctrine says that war is violent and, and, and not particularly desirable, but that it's necessary. You know, if you want peace, if you want justice to be restored, then you need to wage war. A pacifist would say that doesn't work, or that war is never capable of creating uh, a good end, and that it's so morally repugnant in and of itself that it's never justifiable. Now, there are le different levels of pacifism. The early church, for example, writers like Oregon, Tertullian, Lactantius, we might think of these as what is called separational pacifists, that they see themselves 
as separated from society and they are personally bound by a doctrine of nonviolence. But they didn't necessarily condemn all war, that they said that other people perhaps could wage war legitimately, particularly the Roman emperor. Writers like Wycliffe, however, we might class as absolute pacifists. These are writers that think that war is always illegitimate and that restrictions on war apply to everybody or should apply to everybody. There's one slight caveat that I would add is that pacifists don't necessarily reject the idea of coercion within domestic life. So civil, domestic, uh, judicial coercion. So people going to prison or even perhaps people being flogged or, or other physical punishments. It's war, not necessarily all violence, that they really object to. So I think we need to see Wycliffe in, in, in that light, that he, he, he rejected war, he didn't necessarily reject judicial violence within the domestic sphere. In terms of why he, he came to that stance, that's really based upon his theology. He, as, as, as you may know, he's often associated with English translations of the Bible. There's actually something called the Wycliffe, Wycliffe Bible or the Wycliffeite Bible that he and a team of scholars probably translated together um, by the early 1380s. And he very much put a stress on the New Testament and the Gospels. And above all, he stressed the doctrine of caritas, which is the Latin word for charity. And he really thought that charity and everything that was expressed by that word, love, self-sacrifice, obedience to God, humility, um, the renunciation of uh, property and wealth and material interests. He thought that caritas or charity should be the single guiding principle for all Christian life. And essentially his interpretation of charity and his belief that the law of charity or the law of Christ, as he also called it, as contained within the Gospels, was entirely sufficient for human society. And that if you actually took those stipulations seriously, to turn the other cheek, to live a life of poverty like the early apostles, that if you took those stipulations seriously, then you would never feel the need to go to war. The causes of war, the defense of property, the defense of wealth, the defense of lordship, vengeance, none of these causes would matter to somebody who worshipped God, who loved their neighbor, who gave up material wealth, um, who didn't value human law, but rather valued divine law. So really, he chipped away at this idea of just cause. He also chipped away at the idea of just authority, because he said the, 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 tr the only true authority is Christ. Christ is the head of the church, and Christ should be the head of human society. And Christ, who he called the Rex Pacificus, the king of peace, would never authorize war. He also developed, uh, and which got him in serious trouble, a theory of what's called grace-founded dominion. So he thought that true lordship could only be bestowed through God's grace. And actually, any violent impulses shown by a ruler was evidence that, that grace had been removed from him, and therefore his claim to legitimate lordship or rulership had also been removed. So... 
in that way, any ruler who wanted to wage war had already shown themselves to be illegitimate, that they didn't have the authority to do so in the first place. And he thought that vengeance should be the right of God alone and, and nobody else. And finally, going back to his idea on charity, he completely rejected this idea of correct intention. Whereas Augustine said you could you know, wage war with love, he basically divorced act from intention. You, know, you could have a peaceful intention in your heart, but could still perform a violent act. Wycliffe didn't find this convincing. He said, if you have a violent intention, it will come out as a violent act. And if you have a peaceful intention, it will come out as a peaceful act. So he refused to divorce act from intention and said that if you are truly charitable, you will act in charitable ways. You will imitate Christ, you will imitate the apostles, and you will imitate the masters. And that it would always be better to sacrifice yourself than to commit homicide and to kill a fellow human being. So he really just chipped away at this the entire doctrine of medieval just war doctrine and came out at the end of it with a doctrine of, of pacifism, with a, a, a rejection of, of war in all its forms. Well, in our own society, pacifism tends to, to really feel rooted in objection to something specific, you know, protesting the Vietnam War or drone strikes in Afghanistan. So I, I wonder about the context of Wycliffe's own pacifism. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on in 14th century England, uh, if there are specific wars that he may have objected to? But I'm also interested in who he's addressing these thoughts to. Is he actually trying to speak to power? Is he really trying to convince political authority to cease making war? Or is he writing to other Christian thinkers? That's a great question. Yeah, 14th century England was a pretty unstable period of English history in, in many ways. The Hundred Years' War with France begins in 1337, and there is pretty much regular warfare, many expeditions sent to the continent, fears of French invasion between 1337 um, to 1360. There's then a 10-year truce called the, the Peace of Bretigny. Um, and then things kick off again from the 1370s all the way up until the late 14th century. Now, this obviously creates a kind of a war culture within England. Um, there is a pro-war party amongst the leading politi political figures, um, the leading barons and magnates uh, and prelates. Um, and there is a a much smaller anti-war party as well. There's also obviously the Black Death in the in the middle of the century, probably around the time when actually Wycliffe arrives in Oxford himself. He survives uh, quite evidently, but this undoubtedly would have influenced his thought on life and death uh, without a shadow of a doubt. There's also religious turmoil. Uh, in 1378, the Great Schism occurs, where we have popes in Rome and in Avignon. There is the so-called Norwich Crusade um, of 1383, uh, where an English army is sent to Flanders to wage war against what they see as the 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 the, the anti the antichrists who are supporting the, the wrong pope. So uh, Wycliffe is is aware of these political changes, aware of these religious sort of feuds. And, and actions. And indeed, he does partake in politics to a certain degree. From the 1370s, he becomes associated with 
John of Gaunt, who is the Duke of Lancaster. He is the brother of Edward III. He is the uncle of Richard II and a very, very powerful and influential man in England. Wycliffe is sometimes accused of being Gaunt's kind of stooge. Um, I think that's probably uh, slightly misrepresenting their relationship. But Wycliffe does become involved to a degree in political affairs. In the early 1370s, he seems to have gone to Bruges on some sort of diplomatic mission with, with others. That was not particularly successful. In the late 1370s, he talks to Parliament. Um, he defends uh, clerical disendowment. And he is really used by John of Gaunt as an intellectual voice to criticise the, the papacy and to criticise some of the policies of the English clergy. So he, he is involved in politics. And actually, he is protected to some extent by John of Gaunt because he has a position on transubstantiation, which is deemed um, heretical. And he is brought to trial by the Bishop of London, William of Courtney. And many of his theses on grace-founded lordship are also rejected. His theses on the fact that the church should be disendowed, should be stripped of its property. These are condemned by church authorities as well. And yet he is defended repeatedly by Gaunt and Gaunt's circle. So he is not uh, naive in terms of English politics, English involvement in, in conflict in this period. However, he is consistently very critical of it. By the 1370s, one of the key differences in English fortunes on the continent is that they start losing. <laughs> um, during the 1337 to 1360 period, Edward III was extremely successful. Um, the great victories at uh, Sluy, the naval battle, the victory at Crecy, um, the victory of the Black Prince at Poitiers. These are famous English victories and, and the English fortunes on, on the continent are very much uh, on the up in the ascendant. After 1360, after 1370 particularly, English military fortunes decline. And there's increasing evidence of criticism within England that the war is being carried on purely for the interests of a small minority, that it's driven by greed primarily, that it's driven by uh, a kind of a lust for vengeance, and that this war is losing both its, both its sort of strategic credibility but also its moral credibility as well. And Wycliffe is, is critical of the uh, intention of soldiers. He's critical of the intentions of the war leaders themselves. He is vehemently opposed to the Flanders Crusade or the Norwich Crusade, as it's also referred to, which he sees as an outrageous um, example of the church encouraging war and the friars particularly being warmongers. So he does key his criticism of war in his theoretical works into criticism of real life wars in his sermon literature, particularly, and in his short polemical tracts against the Norwich Crusade, against the, the papacy and a variety of other subjects. So I do think that the experience of war informs his theoretical leanings. On the other hand, it's very difficult to, to prove that. As I said, there are some references that he makes in his later works, particularly, especially from 1380 onwards until his death in 1384. But those references are reasonably sparse. One 
important reference, though. He does refer to the war in France as the sin of the kingdom. And that is really quite an open condemnation of that war, which is very much associated with the, the English monarchy, of course. You know, English kings are waging the war in France because they claim to have a, thr- uh, 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 they claim a right to the French throne. So calling it the sin of the kingdom is, is, is pretty overt in its criticism of the war itself and, by extension, of the King of England. Well, anyone who's ever seen a production of Henry V or even just heard the St. Crispin's Day speech realizes that Wycliffe's arguments fall ultimately on, on deaf ears. But is there some success story here? Is Are his arguments picked up in later intellectual traditions? Yeah, I mentioned earlier the Hussites in Bohemia. And I think it's really here that his influence is notable. Um, Hussism develops in Bohemia into really two strands. One is a, 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 a an overtly militant strand and the, called Taborism, and actually is very violent and, and there's a, a really quite significant amount of bloodshed. There's a second strand of Hussism, though, that is really infused with the doctrine of, of passive, pacifism and, and which takes up Wycliffe's teachings in really quite a direct way. There's one particular Hussite preacher called Peter Chelchiki, who wrote a number of treaties, essentially and takes Wycliffe's writings, and he says that Wycliffe is, is one of his major influences, both spiritual and intellectual, and repeats them and propagates them. So there are there is evidence of, of Wycliffeite-inspired or Wycliffe-inspired pacifism within Bohemia. There's also very much evidence within late 14th century and early 15th century England within the Lollard movement itself. Now, most people have associated Lollard pacifism with uh, uh, an adaption of Wycliffe's thought. That They say that actually these Lollards, like Brute and, and, and Swindon and others, went further than Wycliffe ever did, that they, they radicalized his thought um, and, and they adapted it. One of the the key arguments within my own book is that actually they didn't radicalize Wycliffe's thought in any shape or form. What they did was they just adopted it wholesale. That radical rejection of warfare, that moral condemnation of warfare is very much there in Wycliffe's work if you read it uh, properly. You know, and if you, if you actually go and read all those difficult, horrible Latin texts, it's, it, it's already there. Um, so, yes, Wycliffe did have... Uh, a short-term influence, I think, in, in a reasonably limited way. The problem with Wycliffe's legacy, I suppose, in terms of why isn't his pacifism more widely known, you know, why is it taken and so long for it to be recognised, is that he very quickly becomes associated with anti-papalism, with his so-called heretical stance on the doctrine of transubstantiation, and his stance on clerical disendowment. And it's for these these ideas that Protestants, a hundred years later, adopt Wycliffe as a kind of a proto-Protestant martyr. Yeah, he's he's called the morning star of the Reformation. Now, of course, this is reading history backwards, isn't it? But these these ideas that Wycliffe also talked about that were so dear to you know Lutheran and, and Calvinist uh, English Protestants become so dominant that they overshadow everything else in Wycliffe's thought, you know, that his his philosophical realism 
is basically forgotten for 500 years. His thought on war is basically forgotten for 500 years. And all that people are really interested in are his anti-papalism, his disendowment theory, his transubstantiation theory, and his association with the translation of the, the Latin Bible into English. So I think he's in some ways a victim of his own success, but those successes uh, in terms of Protestant writing are very much in other areas and, and not in his pacifist thought. And one more thing before we conclude the interview, could you tell us a little bit about Wycliffe's stance on martyrdom and how this feeds into his uh, ob- objections to warfare? Yeah, this is really important in terms of Wycliffe's ultimate rejection of the concept of self-defense. As you, I'm sure, know, in late medieval Europe as a whole, the idea of the martyr of Christ's suffering becomes increasingly important. Movements such as the flagellants are obviously a, a very good example of this, where it was seen that through bodily suffering, you could earn spiritual merit, merit and through sort of imitating Christ's suffering, you could become closer to, to Christ and to the saints. So Wycliffe seems to have been influenced by this. And martyrdom and suffering very much form the basis of his theory of non-resistance. Essentially, he says that every Christian has a duty to imitate Christ. And that if you want to know who is predestined to salvation, the only real way that you can have an idea to guess who is the part of the elect rather than the damned is to see how far they imitate Christ. So he adopts the idea of Christ's passion, the fact that Christ essentially allows himself to be killed and in doing so takes on the sin of humanity and atones for the sin of humanity. Wycliffe adopts that idea and says that individual Christians can essentially do the same thing. That if somebody is attacking you through showing patience, through showing charity, and by allowing the attacker to kill you, that you are in a way producing a microcosm of Christ's passion, that you can not only free yourself from the sin of homicide, but you can adopt the sin of your attacker as well. And through your act of self-sacrifice and through your act of martyrdom, you can also atone for your attacker's sin. And so it's a kind of a, a double win for the church because you are cleansing yourself, but also cleansing your attacker. And it's this, you know, really quite, a demanding <laughs> stipulation for Christians that they should lay down their lives rather than defend themselves that forms the bedrock of the theology of Wycliffe's pacifism, I think. And again, it comes back to this idea of charity, that charity, caritas, the lex caritatis, the law of charity, is the central tenant of all Christian life and should guide all Christian action. Well, Dr. Cox, thank you so much for joining me today and taking the time to talk to me about your book. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. It was a real pleasure, and uh, I hope some of that was interesting and useful. Well, that's it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find me in the Agnes Forum at claytemplemedia.com. Until next time, awe atkwe wale.